Hello, Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you, wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, along with Inside Track co-host... Ed Wilkinson. ...coming to you with my newly re-engineered lower back live from the Wilkinson Wealth Management Studios located in the KVOI Broadcast Complex, welcoming you to a special edition of Inside Track. Producer Tom also joins us running the board and taking your calls. Yep. Hey, Bruce and I want to remind you to please support our great sponsors... Tucson Iron and Metal Retail, 209-1576. Corazon Cabinets at 488-2266. And Essential Pest Control at 886-3029. Also supporting Inside Track is the aforementioned Mr. Wilkinson from Wilkinson Wealth Management. Eb will help you retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call for Eb at 777-1911. Eb and I support all of our great locally owned, family-run businesses who support our show. So should you. As I mentioned at the opening, the neuro team from Barrow Brain and Spine completed their project to re-engineer my back last week. Many thanks to Dr. Stephen Chang and his professional team. I hope you never have to go through what I've gone through the past 14 months. But if you do, Barrow up in Phoenix is the right place for you to go for the best chance of success, I feel great. Now, Jonathan Lines might be a name familiar to you if you follow Republican politics. He has served as Yuma County uh, Chair and Arizona State GOP Chair. Jonathan enjoyed success as State Party Chair from 2017 to 2019. In 2020, he became a Yuma County Supervisor, District 2, where he plays a critical role in leadership there in one of the most crowded border counties in America. If you Google Jonathan, he looks like he's about 28, but he actually has 11 children, five grandchildren, and three more on the way. Um, And uh, I think, do we have Jonathan on the line yet, Tom? I think we're I think we're trying to reach Jonathan right now. Anyway, this guy is a very young, dashing uh, looking man uh, who um, uh, who I worked with at the RNC and I knew for many, many years uh, working in Arizona Republican Party politics. Jonathan, we're here. You're here with us now. Hello, Jonathan. He's lost. Lost in space. Tom is trying to re-hook up with him. Anyway, uh, Jonathan was always unflappable. Uh, He was one of the governor's go-to men uh, for many years on various uh, different issues that they had to uh, work on uh, together, both politically and uh, governmentally. And uh, we're going to get him on the phone very soon. Um, And uh, we might be having phone troubles here today. Who knows? Uh, we may need to uh, narrow cast with them. You never know. We've done that in the past when we ran into problems. And if we have to do that here, we'll do that here. Uh, but um, uh, So before you do that, yeah. tell me about your back. You went in, you got surgery on Wednesday. I did. You were in immense pain before yeah. the surgery. Yeah. Like constant 24-hour like pain? 24-7. Okay. They go in, they open up your back. Yep. They separate two vertebrae. Yep. Using chisel and hammer. Chisel and hammer. And then when you woke up, how long did it take before the pain was gone? Zero. I woke up I woke up and I felt no more neurological pain and wow. haven't and haven't since. Um yeah, it's pretty amazing, uh, the work that they do up there. And uh um they so I have about forty or fifty okay, we have Jonathan on the line. Yes, sir. Oh, You're interrupting right. our great backstory, Jonathan. <laughs> okay, I can go away. No, no. I, no, no, stay right there. It's hard enough getting you here. We were just lamenting how good-looking you are with 11 children. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll blame everything on my wife. I, I'm just a support cast. <laughs> so, I know your family hasn't given you any gray hairs, but what about being a leader at the Yuma County Board of Supervisors during a crisis like the one you and all your colleagues face with drug and human smuggling, cartel crime? Um, that's got to be a very, very difficult task that you and your colleagues on the Board of Supervisors there are dealing with now. Can you describe that for our, our listeners, Jonathan? You know, it's just a little bit frustrating. And since Biden took office, we have seen uh, 
a significant surge here along the border, and it's it's sad that he has delegated control of the borders to the cartels. That's what he's doing. And with yeah. that, with that comes um, incredible human trafficking as well as the trafficking of narcotics. And Bruce, I've had visitors from all over the great United States tell me that this is not a border problem anymore. This is not a Yuma problem or an Arizona problem. This is a problem for every single neighborhood, every single county, and every single state across our great nation. Because the fentanyl and the human trafficking is making its way to every corner of our great nation. How much comes through Yuma right now? Uh, They estimate that 90% of the fentanyl and the other narcotics are actually coming across our southwestern border right now. And, you know, while people think, okay, we need to take a humanitarian stance, I don't disagree. Um, However, the human traffic coming across is just a diversion. And so while Border Patrol, it takes an average of an hour and 15 minutes for a Border Patrol officer to process every individual and yuma's numbers have averaged on the whole about 1200 a day we have 800 agents and so basically every single agent is uh and but you don't have all of those agents on uh all throughout that you know 24-hour shift there's three eight-hour shifts or or three 10-hour shifts with a little bit of overlap but it's just tragic that uh we can't get more assistance, even though, and I've had the opportunity to sit down with Mayorkas, the mayor and I, he promised us one year ago today, Bruce, that we would have these uh, 9 of 11 gaps in the Yuma sector uh, plugged up. And when he failed to act, Governor Ducey took it upon himself with the legislature. They put the Connex boxes up, which controlled the traffic. It it became more of a... uh, a funnel to one specific point. We had fewer getaways, meaning the people that were not turning themselves in. And then the Biden administration, for whatever reason, and I'd really like to know, decided to sue Governor Ducey in the state of Arizona to remove the Connex boxes and thus relegate control of our borders back to the cartels. It's inconceivable. It's inconceivable that the government of the United States would have done that under these circumstances, isn't it? Uh, I, we, we are we are troubled by what we see, and, and Bruce, the fallout around that. Number one, our hospital has more than twenty three million in unreimbursed expenses directly related to the people coming across the border. Number two, we have a significant uh, agricultural presence. Uh, we have had to increase security around our food production, which you know ninety three percent of all of our winter leafy green vegetables come from Yuma, Arizona, and are distributed throughout the entire nation. We have two military bases here, one for the Army and one for Marine Corps Air Station. The military, meaning uh, the uh, MCAS Yuma, the Marines, and all visiting um, other branches of the Air Force, have had to shut down live fire exercises uh, because of the the proximity of the Barium-Goldwater bombing range to the border. And so it affects everything it's not just one particular thing that you can point at it's it's malfeasance on the part of the federal government see we should maintain those live fire exercises <laughs> that's <laughs> well, speaking it would, it would certainly be a deterrent <laughs> but you, you know border patrol speaks to uh yuma's rating we, we always get five star ratings for our hospitality regardless of who you are so uh if somebody makes their way into yuma county they're going to be taken care of but the fact that this is done illegally and that we have no real assistance and no real worry or preoccupation from the federal government for national security or border security. And when you read the the bios on some of these people that are stopped, they are the worst of the worst. And those are the ones that we're catching. Just think, if you're a bad guy, you're not turning yourself in. You know, the the people that are turning themselves in although I don't think they should use that to get here, at least they're turning themselves in. The bad guys are getting away. And from 140 different countries, who knows who the hell is here? It's estimated 1.3 million gotaways. That's what they estimate conservatively. That's Border Patrol getting out, tracking tracks, and determining that that person has been picked up by a vehicle or some other 
type of transportation to get them out of the border. So 1.3 is a conservative estimate of people that we do not know about, where they're going, what their purposes are, and if they are, you know, friends of our country, if they want to do things the right way. Yeah, number one, they're nefarious, or they wouldn't be doing that. Um, Hey, speaking of that, talk about the cartels and the control that they're exercising on smuggling and controls of the southern border. Yeah, the, the, uh, the, all of the trafficking activity, and it doesn't matter whether it is human trafficking or whether it's narcotics, all of it is controlled by the cartels. And right now you have two factions of El Chapo's cartel that are fighting each other uh, 20 miles southwest of the border. And uh, in that region, uh, there have been over 180 executions over the last mm-hmm. year. When, when Border Patrol talks about the amount of money, Let's just do a quick little math, Bruce. I know you're really good at math. Um, but you take an average, and this is the low average, of $6,000 a person. That's the average. $6,000 a person times 1,200 people a day that are paying for passageway to and across our border. And then you think about that on a monthly basis and then a yearly basis. Just in Yuma, we had over 300 thousand people last year and those were the known gotaways estimate another 15 to 20 percent on the top of that for the getaways so jonathan they're they're making tons of money the cartels are making tons of money on the diversionary uh uh, work that they're doing okay but but then they're they're bringing in as much or more money, I, I uh, suspect, because Border Patrol and other law enforcement is diverted, as you said, being hospitality uh, coordinators uh, and health coordinators. Um, uh, so then the drugs come, come flowing in and there's billions of dollars that they're making there. So your board is split three to two with Democrat control. And and uh, and yet and the, yet they support border security 100. percent We've been 100 percent united on this approach. That and I I I didn't know the answer to the question, and I wasn't going to presume uh, what the answer was going to be. But that might be maybe one of the best things that our listeners can hear coming from your talk with us today, Jonathan. That your three-two uh, majority, Democrat majority on the Yuma Board of Supervisors are all standing in uni- in unity on this particular uh, matter. Well, and it goes to kind of the caliber of people that I work with. I, as the uh, vice chairman, have been elected by unanimously by a three-two board. So they want uh, me to be able to work with them in making sure that we get something done. It's my second year serving as the vice chair. So we have amazing people that are working, trying to solve problems in this county. Uh, and it's incredibly important that, you know, I, I would ask that people would look at the, the makeup of our board and try to, try to replicate the uh, cooperation, sit down talking it through. They understand that uh, there are certain things that we're not going to be able to overcome unless we work together. But they're they're fiscal conservatives and they are hawkish on national security and border security. Well, Jonathan, thanks for taking time out on a Saturday afternoon to join us. Thank you very much for the for the report. There is there is some hope uh, uh, that you that you've given uh, us that uh, uh, in Yuma County there is a, a solution where Democrats and Republicans are working together. Thanks very much for joining us. Hope you can talk with us again sometime soon. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me on, Bruce. Thanks, right. Jonathan. Mr. Producer, right, let's bye-bye. go to our first break. You're listening to Inside Track on KVOI, Trusted Local News and Talk. When we return, we'll speak with Dr. Jonathan Barth from the ASU Center for American Institutions, who will be spending the balance of the show with us today. No station flippings. We'll be right back. Jamie Kipper and her father, Gary Kipper, from Tucson Iron and Metal. What are they going to see when they come through the gates? So when they come on in, they'll see our building up front. People have free reign to then go out and look in the yard. 
So it's not a typical scrapyard with a ton of big machinery. We have a couple of forklifts around, but that's about it just to help move material. So when you come in, it's all organized by material, whether it's square tubing, angle iron, roofing, and then there is a pile in the back, which is still organized and easy to get through, but that's stuff that comes over from the scrap. So we're unique in that we get stuff in from the scrap, which a lot of artists and people will like or reuse, whether it's a sink that someone needs for their house. We sell literally anything made of metal. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. This is Eb Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management. Are you letting rising inflation interfere with your ammo budget? Don't do that. Let us show you how to buy the same goods and services 20 years from now as you can today. We manage money for gun owners and we can guide you to retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911 or WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. We are very pleased to finally speak with our second guest today named Jonathan, Dr. Jonathan Barth. Jonathan is an associate professor of history at Arizona State University and associate director of the Center for American Institutions at ASU. He specializes in the history of money, banking, empire, and politics in the early modern period. Barth received his PhD in history from George Mason University in 2014. In 2005, he received his BA in secondary education from Appalachian State University. He taught high school for two years and then received his MA in history at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte in 2009. His book, The Currency of the Empire, Money and Power in the 17th Century English America, was released by Cornell University Press in 2021. He has an upcoming publication, <clears throat> Liberty of Conscience is Every Man's Natural Right, Historical Background of the First Amendment, Journal of Policy History, which is forthcoming in 2023. Hey, thanks for joining us today, Jonathan. Thank you, Bruce. It's a pleasure. Well, actually, this is Eb. Bruce is uh, the one with the I'm nice on the, voice. I'm on, the other, I'm on the other side of the desk here. No worries. Hey, you're part of the ASU Center for American Institutions. Tell us what that center is and what your role is with that. Oh, we're... So we're really excited about this new center. We started last year. Our mission is, well, twofold. First, we want to bring intellectual diversity to campus. I think it's it's not a secret to you or your listeners that our universities today have become um, uh, uh, single single minded as far as a uh, worldview, and and there's not a whole lot of room for other perspectives. And so we hope to broaden that, but. Our, the mission of our center is to to foster and renew the institutions that are most essential to to liberty. And so we look at legal institutions, financial, economic, the family, political, the military, you name it, and uh, and how those institutions can be organized to to create a, a world friendly to liberty. How much pushback are you getting from the ASU on this? <laughs> Actually, the administration has been. Uh, on board, and we've had a lot of support from them, and it's been a, a bumpy ride here and there over the last few years in setting this up. But uh, President Michael Crow's been been very supportive, and so so we this is a, a great opportunity, a unique unique opportunity. We're privately funded, so we don't receive any money from the state, and uh, so we're uh, we're running a we're running a strong operation, and excited for what we have in the future. What kind of budget do you have? Oh, uh, we're talking. <laughs> Shy, uh, around a million, uh, just shy of that. Um, we're, we, we're, we're, our programming is, uh, we run a tight budget, but, you know, next month, February 16th, we're bringing in Katie Pavlich, who's a frequent contributor of 
Fox News. I think she's the editor at Town Hall. She's coming in. We had Brett Weinstein uh, last year. We're having Pete, having Peter McAuliffe in the fall. So we bring in a pretty good um, uh, network of speakers. So tell our listeners the best way to find out more or to contribute to the ASU Center for American Institutions. Certainly. So you can find us on Facebook. Um, we're still working on the website. ASU bureaucracy, as you can imagine, is very intense. <laughs> and we just got started last year, so we're working all that out. But uh, if you look on Facebook, you can find our, our Facebook page. Follow us there. Uh, we're also on Instagram and Twitter. Um, you can also reach out to me. Um, you can, uh, my website's www.professorbarth.com, and I have my email on there. You can reach out to me if you want to find out how you can contribute. Hey, Jonathan, Bruce Ash here. Uh, before I get back uh, uh, to uh, uh, Eb and, and and a few questions he has for you, um, so uh, diversity on college campuses uh, is uh, difficult these days, and you know you've you've talked about that. Um, at ASU, with your particular program, um, how difficult is it for you to, to make the breakthrough to, let's just call it the other side, who doesn't share uh, the same thoughts? Is there much dialogue between uh, differing uh, and, and, and opposing views about the world and government and life and so on? Or is it sort of an echo chamber uh, that, we, that we have? Oh, I think we have uh, a little bit of a... Another phone problem here. Uh, so while Tom is trying to work that out, so I have, uh, you may remember listeners and Ab, uh, we had Donald Critchlow uh, on the show about a year or so yeah. ago, a uh, great book that he wrote. Uh, Jonathan works for Don. Um, I'm actually going to talk with with uh, the group uh, in, an, in a few weeks, uh, God willing, uh, about uh, about myself and, and the things that I've done politically as well as professionally. Uh, Katie Pavlich and and some of the other uh, guests that they've had come in on a national basis uh, are are terrific speakers, and they do really do have a great uh, depth and, and breadth across the uh, the campus world there. So I think we're and just... I absolutely want to go hear Katie Pavlich. Oh yeah, no, she's she's great. All right, I think we have. I'll Dr. even come hear you. <laughs> I think we have Jonathan Barth back on the line. Yeah, I'm back. I'm not sure what happened there. So okay, don't right. push the red button. <laughs> So, so I was talking about diversity on college campuses and the difficulty that that students have breaking through, you know, different barriers to talk together about their differences and try to find common a commonality. Have you found a certain level of success with that yet, uh, with uh, the Center for American Institutions? Yeah, we have. So, uh, nationwide polling shows that college students self censor a lot. So while it's true that there are a lot of wild-eyed, um, extremely woke college students, there's no doubt about that. There's a strong activist element. However, I think that the vast majority are not like that, but many of them feel intimidated. They don't want to speak up in class, either intimidated by their professors or by fellow students. And I think one of one of the benefits to our classes, so I teach, a class, I teach U.S. history, I teach a course on the history of money, and I teach a course called Foundations of Democracy, which we talk about political history of political thought and such. And the students learn pretty quickly that they're encouraged to speak their mind, that I make it very clear that alternative perspectives are allowed. We have progressive students. We have conservative students. We have libertarian students. The goal is to create an atmosphere where students can engage with one another without, without the intimidation, without tempers flaring, and, and try to have some sort of conversation about ideas. And I think for a lot of, of the progressive students, even if they remain progressive coming out of the class, for many of them, it's the first time they've been exposed to these ideas in a fair way. They always get a caricature of conservative ideas. And so it's actually very useful for them to, to hear what the other side honestly thinks about things. So, Jonathan, let's start from where we are today and work our way backwards. You know, we've already established your bona fides on your knowledge of currency and money. Our nation elects a Congress and a president, and it doesn't seem to matter which party they are. They spend money like drunken sailors. And for the first time since World War II, the debt is in excess of $32 trillion, and that's 100, 120% of our GDP, and about two-thirds yep. of the annual spending is for mandatory expenses. Um, yep. You know, as a historian... You've studied and written about past recessions, depressions, and panics. So we're either in one, 
unless you talk to Joe Biden and then we're not, or, or headed to a great recession. The numbers are pretty staggering. How great is the chance for a depression or a panic? I think I think it's. I mean, it's definitely coming. The question is how severe it will be. Look, twenty twenty two was a crushing year for the American worker and and for the middle class. Um, the the inflation. You look at it on average. Average family in the United States lost about six thousand dollars in purchasing power just in two thousand twenty two. Um, credit card debt is at an all-time high, and now as interest rates start to as the interest rates go up, those credit card payment credit card interest rates also are at an all-time high. Um, personal savings are at an all-time ro- low. You mentioned it; the national debt is a massive problem. I mean, and really, I think you can trace a lot of this back to COVID. Since um, the COVID, since March of 2020, our national debt has risen by 37 percent. Over half of that spending was monetized by the Federal Reserve. And to put that in layman's terms, basically the Federal Reserve purchased much of that new debt with currency created out of thin air. Um, And that's why the dollar has lost a lot of its value. Now inflation is slowing down. But at what cost? At the cost of rising interest rates, which is going to is is uh, bringing the country into a recession, is going to make things really painful for people. So I think it's not a question of of if there will be a recession or not. The question is how severe it will be, and and how does the Federal Reserve <laughs> manage all of this? I wouldn't want to be uh, Jerome Powell right now, that's for sure. So you've got you've got inflation really kicking off. You've got the government saying unemployment's down in the threes. And yet, uh-huh. there's seven million factory jobs available right now today, let alone other jobs out there. Um, how much does this play into inflation? Well, uh, the, the yeah, the labor participation is uh, is down. Yeah, we, there's there's a lot of paradoxes here. Yeah, we've. And by the way, I think this is one reason why one among many reasons why the uh, Republicans didn't do as well as people had hoped last November is unemployment has been low. Um, I mean, when we, when we look at the 2008, 2009 crisis, unemployment was about 10%. So, you know, that's made a difference. I, in my, in my view, I, stu- I study money. I think it's all federal reserve policy, the federal reserve. Uh, if you look at the, um, the feds balance sheet after COVID went up more than doubled, went up by, I think it was 130%. And the money supply, M2, is the, the metric that the that is used to, to measure the money supply. M2, the money supply rose by uh, 45%. Well, when, shoot, when you have 45% more currency in circulation, it doesn't, it's not rocket science, science to, uh, to guess what's going to happen. I, I think what the Americans have dealt with over the last year, um, you know, inflation, it's been said before, inflation is a hidden tax. It's a tax on the American people, and the bills from the pandemic are, have, have, are being paid through, through inflation. And so everything's become more expensive. Your grocery bill is up uh, in this last year by 12%. Um, your electric bill is up 14% over last year. All of that is a hidden tax to pay for, all, for the reckless spending in, over the last three years. Dr. Barth, we're gonna we need to take our bottom of the hour break, so let's hang on for for the moment. Uh, you're listening to Inside Track, where our guest is Jonathan Barth from ASU Center uh, for American Institutions. We'll be right back after these messages. Hang tight. Don't do any station flipping. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m., and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street, Call 520-209-1576 or go to TucsonIronRetail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. 
Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. With science. You mean you don't use a shoe? <sighs> no, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. This is Ed Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management reminding you that every good and excellent thing stands moment by moment on the razor's edge of danger and must be fought for, including getting out of debt, building your wealth, and protecting your God-given right. We manage money for gun owners. Let us help you retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me at 777-1911 or WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. Bruce and Eber here. We're talking with Jonathan Barth. Uh, Jonathan, we just, uh, or I just finished the Amity Schley's biography of Calvin Coolidge. A hundred years ago this year, when he succeeded after Warring Harding's uh, death in 1923, the annual budget of the United States was $3.2 billion. The mm-hmm. debt at that time, which included World War I debt, was about $23 billion. The Federal Reserve System was in its infancy. President Coolidge, Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon, and the budget chief uh, managed to work down national war debt and the annual budget to a smaller level while promoting many increases in industry and using what Mellon referred to as scientific tax policy. Our balance sheet really doesn't take into account for Social Security and Medicare liabilities the way it needs to be. Social Security and Medicare reforms have always been considered the third rail for politicians. If Social Security qualifications was pushed out by two or three years for younger payers, and if Medicare means testing was changed to form higher uh, uh, income earners, you know, putting more into the system and and maybe getting less in benefits, how much do you think, because I have no idea, but I I hear politicians talking about, you're a scholar, how much um, would that change the trajectory what the chances uh, are for co- for Congress to really change and reform Social Security and Medicare to keep it solvent for as long as possible. I don't have much hope that Congress is going to do what needs to be done to Medicare and Social Security. If you look at the unfunded liabilities for both of those programs, it's close to $60 trillion. Um, you're right, it's a third rail in politics. It's It's just not I, I don't think it happens in our it's going to happen in our political system. You know, for all the virtues of of, uh, of democracy, uh, it's one one uh, down downside about democracy, for which uh, some ancient writers like Aristotle were very critical, um, uh, is that it's difficult to do things that are necessary yet unpopular. Every everything must be every policy you pursue must be a popular one, and it's not going to it's never going to be popular to reform Medicare and Social Security in a significant, meaningful way. But it's got to be done. It's so I think the only way any action will get done on it is is real pain for the American people. Until then, the debt's going to continue to climb, and it's probably going to, it will probably be funded through uh, monetiz- through the Fed monetizing the debt because people don't want high taxes either. People want low taxes and a ton of spending. Well, you can't have both. Uh, and, and if you want to have both, then the only way to fund it is through, through money printing. Of course, they don't print it literally anymore. They create it digitally, but it's the same thing. And so I, I, don't, think any, I don't think Congress can get anything done on it realistically. hate to be a pessimist, but. We're here with uh, our special guest, Dr. Jonathan Barth from the ASU Center for American Institutions. If you've got a question or comment relevant to the discussion today with Dr. Barth, please give us a call at 790-2040. As far as, as, as for topics, I think we could start with the Fed policy, how it relates to inflation and the likelihood of a recession in 2023. From there, if time permits, we could address the ballooning national debt interference in the market economy, or if you wanted to, we could discuss some history. Let's talk about the gold standard. Right. So the United States across the 20th century slowly and gradually went off the gold standard. FDR took some pretty significant moves toward ending the gold standard in the 1930s, but there was still a very weak 
and tenuous link to gold after the Great Depression. That wasn't cut until Richard Nixon in 1971. And the reason why Nixon closed the gold window was uh, all the, the he had guns and butter in the 1960s under LBJ, Great Society, welfare spending. On top of that, the Vietnam War, the deficits, annual deficits were just over the roof. And, uh, and foreign countries, especially France, called out the United States and began demanding gold for their overseas dollar holdings. The United States was unable to pull, pay up, and so they, Nixon just, <laughs> just cut the gold window. And since 1971, there has been no gold anchor for the United States dollar. So essentially, we have an anchorless dollar, a dollar that isn't tied to anything. And so um, if you look at the a fiat currency, yep, that's right. Fiat currency, which means it has its value by decree, but it has nothing backing it. Um, that's how government has been able to finance all of this massive spending. But the chickens are really coming home to roost. You know, another large um, uh, budget item besides Medicare and Social Security is interest payments on debt. I mean, uh, actually, it came out just the other day. In 2022, the federal government paid $850 billion just in interest payments on the debt. That's the third largest item on the budget. And as interest rates continue to rise, that's only going to go up. I mean, that's close to 20% of the federal budget just paying interest on the debt. Yeah, that was one of the things that I, I never thought uh, the, the U.S. government would would um, raise interest rates uh, to to the high levels we've seen because of the impact that it would have on the budget. Uh, but, Jonathan, most people in America don't know how to uh, uh, even uh, balance, balance a checkbook, it, yeah. uh, nor do they learn that in high school and so on today. But we do have a caller, Charles Heller, uh, who is waiting to ask you a question. Number one, he's a guy who I think does know how to uh, balance a checkbook and a guy who's pretty smart on economics himself. Charles, go ahead. Do you have a question or comment for Dr. Barth? Yeah, I've always objected to fiat currency. I've always thought we'd have done better if we had Dodge Dart currency. But <clears throat> Okay, the, Charles. Uh, but I, would, I did want, I want to ask a question in terms of the national debt. Would it be possible to reduce the national debt over a period of years through economic growth and limiting spending to a point of where at, at some fixed point in the future we could actually have a zero zero the national debt well the the last time the national debt was completely paid off was andrew jackson <laughs> a little fun fact for you andrew jackson was the only president who ever paid off the debt um uh I think you can, you can um, through economic growth, you can, you can allow, you can keep this system going for a while, maybe, maybe indefinitely. Um, there will be some debate about that. Um, but as it currently stands, the United States, it, our, uh, our economic and regulatory policy places um, so many burdens on business. And, and uh, I think if you completely upended the regulatory state and, and allowed for, I would also, I mean, this is some of the, what we're talking about is more, are more radical ideas. I think the federal income tax is a, it was a big mistake that, by the way, that, that was, uh, that was enacted in 1913, the same year as the Federal Reserve. I think if, if you were to eliminate the federal income tax, um, free, uh, eliminate these, uh, onerous, regulations, the economy would ab- absolutely take off. Um, capital would flock to the United States. And uh, you could finance government maybe through a, a moderate tariff. You know, that's how the United States government funded itself for yeah. the first Before three and a half. Of- <clears throat> yeah. yeah. The, other quest- the other question I had for you is if we were to, if we were to uh, switch the basis of the tax from income to transactional, and that's, I think, what you were talking about, a tariff. But if we were to switch the basis of the tax from income to transactional so that the tax could be truly fair, in other words, it would strictly depend on what you buy as opposed to what you earn, would that be a system, Would that augur in the direction of a balanced budget? And I'll listen to your answer on the air. You've only, only if you cut, dramatically cut spending. The spending's got to, one way or the other, spending has got, has got to, to, to be reduced in a significant way. And again, that goes back to a lot of these entitlement programs, because I think if you get if you take the big four, Medicare, Social Security, defense, interest on the debt, after that, the, the remaining budget items 
Um, yeah, we can make major dents there, but you would still have a huge debt if, if you don't deal with some of these other programs. Um, I'm a big, I, I mean, I, I, I'm a big uh, defense guy. I mean, I think if, if someone attacks our country, we ought to hit them and hit them hard. I think there's also a lot of waste in the military budget that can be streamlined, I believe. Um, and, and uh, but the entitlement system, I mean, someone like me, you know, um, I'm, I turn 39 next month. You know, uh, I'm not totally confident that I'm ever going to see my Social Security, you know, uh, by the time, you know, I retire. And so I think, you know, it, that. but on the other hand, people who have paid into the system their whole lives without any choice, they've been compelled to, it would be unjust to not return to them their money. So this is the United States, is it, we're in a really difficult situation here um it's it it and that's why our system of government actually isn't the best isn't really cut out for something like this um because whatever you do it's going to be unpopular people aren't gonna people aren't gonna like want to do anything serious about this dr Dr. barth let me let me just interject for just a second we've talked Mm -hmm. about uh government influence and and interference in the economy and in business and so on what is the best form of interference or influence that the government could make in our market economy today? I'm, I'm a supporter of, I'm actually a supporter of a supporter of a mild protective tariff. Um, but, uh, and some libertarians, a lot of libertarians, well, maybe all libertarians would object to that and say, well, you know, um, that trade should, you know, we should free up foreign trade. But actually, I think if you're going to have, look, you need revenue for the government, okay, one way or the other. Um, the income tax taxes domestic production. It taxes domestic productivity and, and uh, economic activity, whereas the tariff taxes foreign production. If you're going to raise revenue, I'd rather raise that revenue by taxing foreign articles and then that way you and you not only can raise revenue for the government but you also uh, have the uh the the secondary effect of of stimulating domestic domestic industry and you know that used to be a republican uh staple you know you mentioned calvin coolidge calvin coolidge by the way is the last president who lowered the national debt calvin coolidge raised the raised the tariff yes he did you know that used to be that used to be a Republican staple. And, uh, uh, I, I, you know, if, if that would be one area. And I do think you need some minimal regulations to make sure people aren't, um, companies aren't, you know, obviously defrauding anybody. And, you know, you need some minimal regulations like that. But all that, that what we have today is ridiculous. So we've got a caller. Mark? Yes. Uh, thank you, Bruce, for having, Bruce and Ed, for having this, uh, Ed, I mean, having your guest speaker on. And uh, anyway, so right now, he, he mentioned that we're about 60 trillion, trillion with a T, unfunded dollars for Social Security. Is this, did I hear that right? You heard that right. And um, yeah, nearly that. We're probably, yeah, yeah, most likely we're probably twice that and various other unfunded types of, of state and other, even maybe private uh, Social Security types of uh, pensions. I'm guessing probably around 120 trillion unfunded um, debts. Mm-hmm. So, um, is it possible that uh, we could use our abundant energy exports to uh, help you know, fund all these things? And uh, also, <clears throat> uh, so in the last couple of years or so, I can't remember when, the country of Greece just took monies out of their people's uh, bank accounts. Just they wake up in the morning and they have half the money that they thought they had in their bank accounts without notification. And uh, Are you uh, saying that's a good idea, Mark? Oh, no. I'm (laughs) saying, you know, I think we'd have a, I think we'd have a a revolution if that happened here. But uh, but Greece tolerated it. The people of Greece tolerated it. Anyway, what kind of, you know, that's very drastic that the government just takes people's money away, which they do anyway. And uh, so uh, what do you think of uh, such possibilities as that? Uh, some, you know, maybe not to that degree, but uh, I think we're heading for a big crash if we don't. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think uh, on the energy, yeah, totally free up the energy sector. We have such a wealth of resources in, in this country. There's no excuse that we're you know to be importing energy and um, and so yeah, I think freeing up that sector would be a source of of wealth for the country. Um, I I don't think yeah. I remember what you're talking about in Greece. You're right. They they uh, they um, they just took money from people's accounts. I I think when when you're in charge of the printing press for you know which Greece was not. Um, uh, you know, when you're in charge of the printing press, you uh, you're you're more likely to to just create new money to finance the debt as opposed to taking it from people's accounts. It's a little more imperceptible for the average American. And look, this has been done before and in our history, by the way. You know, the, during the American Revolutionary War, I guess we did squeeze in history during the American Revolutionary War. The Continental Congress had no money, and so they just they created a fiat. It was the first continental dollar. They, they created just millions and millions and millions of these paper dollars. They're worth nothing and it hyperinflated completely. But, you know, it, it financed everything at what cost through a lot of uh, monetary chaos. So if, the, if I think ultimately, you know, uh, you know, decades from now, and by the way, this happened in France, too, around the time of the French Revolution. Same deal. I think um, the government's much more likely to finance. Uh, the growing debt through through money creation than through than through uh, onerous taxes or through taking money from people's bank accounts. But we'll probably see more taxes on the wealthy, and of course there'll be exemptions for their friends. There always are. Sure, we've got one more caller, Rick. And Rick, uh, we are short on time, so please make it brief. Okay, um, the. Five million people that have come in the past two years from other countries. Do you have the audacity to tell me that we're not obligated to pay for their health care, their education, their children's education, to provide them with housing, Section 8 housing? How, how is it not their right? And how can you be such a cruel, uh, uh, inhumane kind of person? The, 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 the technical term is bastard. <laughs> Um, I'm assuming that that was a, uh, a sarcastic caller, or maybe not. Oh my God. There are people who think feel that way. Look, uh, uh, no country in the world, well, I, I guess they may allow this also in the EU. Um, open, open borders is just, especially when you're in a wealthy country, and much of the world is, uh, and for as many problems as we have, the United States is still a wealthy country, okay? And when you, when you just open, when you completely open the, the doors to anybody can come in and um, you're just, uh, of course, you're going to have millions and millions of people streaming across and they're going to have and they will demand benefits. Um, I don't blame them, per se. You know, that's that's how they that's how it's been sold to them. And, um, you know, uh, and then you, you'll hear some people say, well, we that we need more people in this country to help finance a lot of the the entitlement programs because we've had falling birth rates. The answer to that is for for young Americans that have more children. No kidding. To just. Mm-hmm open the doors for anybody who wants to come in. You know, I mean, young people need to start having kids. I'm a firm believer in that. Have some children. Have, you know, young families. If you're a young person listening to this, get married, have four, five, six kids. That's the best thing you could do for your country right now. We need (laughs) more young people. That's patriotic. I got to tell Tammy. That's, hey, that's being patriotic. Thanks yeah, for your and, call, Rick. Yeah, and, and with that uh, being said, Professor Barth, uh, you know, take a look at Sweden. Uh, back in the 80s and early 90s, uh, Sweden was a very homogeneous society. I mean, everybody was blonde-haired, everybody was blue-eyed, uh, except for the uh, immigrant spouses. Then they opened up the doors with all the EU. The Turks came in. And now even Sweden is having a major, major crisis with immigration. They want to stop it. The The crime is rampant. Uh, old Sweden, Gamlestan, you know, is just covered with criminals, covered with uh, gangs. And so mm-hmm. it's not like this is something new. Nope. No, that's right. And and so Sweden is unable to support its its welfare state, which they, they were able to do for a while because they, there's a homogeneous society and crime rates are through the roof. But you've seen this through history. That's what happened. How did the Roman Empire fall? fall? I blame the French. <laughs> you had you had from Northern Europe, from Northern Europe, you had massive uh, hordes of, of, uh, of uh, they're called barbarians coming into the empire and it, and, 
and and within and you also had by the way currency devaluation depreciation and uh and the empire fell within within a short time you know so this is something you know history is uh cyclical in many ways we empires rise and fall we have all the telltale signs right now of a declining empire but look you know things could turn around if people wake up but you know, it it doesn't help that we uh, our education system is broken, our media is completely broken, and so you know it's it's hard to even get a message across in that direction. You know, Jonathan, it seems at times when I when I speak with you or when I read, you know, Wall Street Journal and and uh, other publications, I, I feel like I'm in this dream, a bad dream, where I'm slowly walking toward the edge of the cliff, and we're not at the cliff yet. And I haven't fallen down and broken my broken my neck, but it sure feels like we're on that trajectory right now. You've mentioned tariffs. You've mentioned um, uh, uh, you know difference in in taxes because we're we're likely not going to uh, stop spending money. You've talked about regulation changes. Are these enough to at least delay the inevitable? Where, where maybe that move toward toward you know Holocaust economic Holocaust gets put off by another 10 15 25 years at least until we figure out something else I think we can I do think we can look I mean the one so there are some bright spots here I mean the US still has by far the strongest economy we're number as far as GDP we're number one China is a distant second still even where I think we're 24 percent of world GDP China's 15 percent um, we also have a pretty high GDP per capita. China does not. China is actually pretty low when it comes to GDP per capita. So we have a strong economy. We have a lot of innovation. We have bright minds here. We have love. There is an entrepreneurial spirit in America. So I think we can't put things off. Um, uh, we, we need to, well, I mean, obviously, this has been a disastrous administration. Um, we're going to need a return to a conservative government in 2024. And, uh, the, and the, you know, for the next two years, we can hope that the GOP House will at least be able to stymie some of some of this um, in the meantime. Um, the one last thing I have to say, and uh, uh, I'm a Christian man, I think I think we need to return to God. I, we've lost we've lost Amen. our faith in God. Um, we don't you know, there's you look at young people today. And young people just have no reference point. They have no, they have no fixed morality. We live in uh, and 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 there's just a lot of hopelessness. Um, there's moral anarchy where there's no right or wrong anymore. Everything's inverted and turned upside down, and uh, and and there's depre- mental health issues, depression, and you put all that together, and it's just a it's a recipe for disaster. But but it can be turned around. It's just we have to find a way um, to to get the message out. Talk to your neighbors. Get involved in your local community. Understand you're not going to change the world by yourself, but do your part. You know, do what you can on a local level and, uh, and you know, hope and pray for the best. Jonathan Barth, that's going to do it for today. We're at the end of our time. One more time, tell our listeners how best to find out about the Center for American Institution and how to support your work. Real quick. Yep, so um, you can find us on, on Facebook or Instagram, uh, Center for American Institutions. You can find my work. My website is www.professorbarth, that's B-A-R-T-H dot com. Um, you can, you know, or contact me if you want to learn how to, how to uh, support the center. We'd love to have you on board. We're doing a lot of important work. I completely agree, and we're going to have you and your colleagues on the show uh, much more in the upcoming year. Thanks very much for joining us. Until next week for Inside Track, this is Bruce Ash. And Deb Wilkinson. Wishing you all a very pleasant good afternoon. See you again in 167 hours.